And uh, Hilda is going to come and bring us our reading this evening, which is from Matthew 27, verse 32 to 44. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And we know that God will add a blessing to this reading from his Holy Scripture. Thank you, Elton. Then how many of you have read this book by John Carson called Scandalous? If you haven't, I can recommend it uh, very strongly to you. Um, in it, he makes reference to the film Titanic and um, the factually incorrect depiction of what happens when uh, the realisation dawns there aren't enough lifeboats to go round. Uh, what we see in the film is that um, some of the, uh, the men, the rich men, shoving aside women and children to get into the boat, uh, the sailors uh, drawing guns, shooting in the air to ward them back and allowing the, the women and children to come through. According to, to witnesses who survived, in actual fact that did not happen at all. The men did hang back. They did allow the children and women to get into the boats. Um, apparently the richest man on earth at the time was uh, there on the Titanic, on Jacob Astor, and he himself dragged his wife to a boat and refused those who were urging him to get on as well. Now there was a review apparently in the New York Times and uh, the, the writer asked the question, why did the producer, why did the director change this depiction of history? Why did they think it was necessary? And the conclusion that he came to was actually, had they not done that, it would probably have been fairly unbelievable. It wouldn't have been realistic, even though that really happened. And Carson goes on to, to interpret that as a, almost a damning indictment of Western culture. That a hundred years ago, that Christian value of self-sacrifice was still in evidence, but just a short time later, um, you have to change history to make it believable. Well, this evening as we take the Lord's Supper together, we're commemorating the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And it's not so much a sermon this evening, but more of a meditation, a meditation on what Jesus did for us on the cross. And what um, we're going to look at in these verses, one of the huge ironies that the Carson brings out um, is that the religious leaders call out mockingly that he saved others 
but he can't save himself. He saves others, but he can't save himself. Now, what irony is that he, he's, they're actually stating the truth in that statement, but they don't really actually understand why they're stating the truth. Jesus did come into the world as a saviour. Um, his name means God saves. You might remember the account in Matthew of how uh, the, the angel appeared to Joseph and uh, told him that Mary would have a, a baby uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he was to give him the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And the Gospel of Matthew, he goes through this full account of, of Jesus saving people in different ways. The, the Beatitudes, which the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount starts, um, are more about those people who will be saved. Jesus describes them as those who will be in the kingdom of heaven. Describes them as the righteous, those who have received mercy, the sons of God. In short, all those who will be saved. And as he finishes the sermon and goes on and starts ministering to people in a very broken world, a world that has been affected by sin in every way, a world in which there is sickness and fear and death. As he ministers, we are told that Jesus healed many people. And as he did that, he was fulfilling what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah said he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. We read the stories there of how he healed and forgave uh, paralytic. He brought a dead girl back to life. He healed a woman who had been suffering uh, from a bleeding problem for many years, who said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. That word literally means I will be saved. And the passage says Jesus turned and saw her and said, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. When the disciples were about to drown in a storm on the lake, what do they, they do? They, they cried out to Jesus, Lord, save us. Save us. And so the Jewish leaders, you know, they've heard about all these miracles. They know he's saved people in a certain way. And they're saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. And what they're talking about is he can't save himself from death. They mean he, he looks weak, he looks powerless, uh, he's beaten, he's defeated, he's not a Messiah, he's not a king. And the passage that starts in verse 32 that Hilton read for us uh, emphasises that very weakness, doesn't it? He's been flogged, he's had a crown of thorns put on his head, he's been struck on the head again and again. He's in such a weak state that he, he cannot carry the wood, the wooden cross, to where it needs to go. And so the soldiers find somebody else to do that for them. Probably just somebody who happened to be there at the time, Simon of Cyrene. Probably didn't get a choice. He was forced, it says, to do it. And as they arrive, they go gossip outside the city. Jesus is offered wine, probably to dull the pain. But he refuses, again, probably because uh, he wants to remain in control of his senses, of what is going on. He's not only physically exhausted, he's also physically humiliated. He's stripped naked, his clothes are divided up by the soldiers who, who cast lots over them. And in the 20th century, we, 
I remind of those images of Auschwitz of naked male and female Jews who left their clothes in piles that were there for the liberating troops to define the final humiliation. This is humanity at its worst. And yet, this is the humanity that Jesus came to save. They nail the sign to the cross again in mockery. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Not realising that that is exactly who he is. He is a king. And they are murdering the king. Passers by her insults at him. They say, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. What he actually said, if you turn on to to John chapter 2, very briefly. This is the episode of when Jesus overturned the tables of the the money changers and traders in the temple. And he was asked, verse, verse 18, by the Jews, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And he answered them, destroy this temple, you destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? It's only in recent times it's impossible to build uh, these huge buildings in a short period of time. And you think of the, the Shard in London, I think, it's over three years to put up 87 stories, incredible feats. But, um, during, for many years, you know, you think uh, back over the last few hundred years, those great cathedrals you see all around uh, Europe, most of the architects who designed them never lived to see their work complete. And it's the same in Jesus' time, 46 years, but we're not talking about a building here, are we? Because it carries on, verse 21, the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. What he was saying is if they kill him, he will come back to life in three days. But what does he mean by saying the temple was his body? Well, in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God was especially present. It was very symbolic in many ways. And it was where the priests performed the sacrifices on behalf of the other uh, people to make atonement for sin, to make the people right with God. It was a meeting place between the people and God. And Jesus is making the radical claim that he is now that meeting place between the people and God. Because in the one perfect sacrifice, he is, metaphorically speaking, ripping apart that, ter- that curtain that separates us from God. That won't be long now before everything becomes clear for the disciples. But at this stage, Jesus is suffering the mockery, the pain that was necessary for us to be saved. The passers-by mocked, and then in return of the, the chief priests, the, the teachers of the law, the, the elders. Probably been quite unusual for them to be at the place of crucifixion, but Maybe they were there just wanting to, to gloat, to demonstrate to the people that they were still in charge, or so they thought. And so they say, you saved others, 
but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And if this was, if this was Robin Hood about to be executed by the sheriff of Nottingham, he'd be waiting for his men to, uh, to come and rescue him at the last minute, enjoy watching the sheriff eat his words. Or you want Jesus here somehow to climb down from the cross unharmed and say, okay, believe in me. Believe in me. The implication of their statement is that what is the point of being able to save others if, if you can't save yourself? Surely you put yourself first. And what they fail to realise is that Jesus' whole purpose, his whole mission was about saving others. And in order to do that he had to sacrifice himself. He could have saved himself, he could have called down legions of angels to destroy his enemies. But if he had done that, they would not have believed him, would they? Yes, they may accept that he was a, a god of great power, a man of amazing power, but they would not have believed in him as a loving saviour. The saviour of the human race, because the human race needs saving. And not the temporary saving that we looked at earlier, but the healing of disease, but the bringing back from from death only to die again but saving from man's biggest problem our rebellion against God remember that verse we looked at um, a couple of weeks ago from Deuteronomy 1 people of Israel are about to enter the promised land and Moses reminds them of how God has, has always looked after them let me read that couple of verses to you then Moses here says I said to you do not be terrified do not be afraid of them the Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place in spite of this you did not trust in the Lord your God you were unwilling to go up you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. People have rebelled against God. They continue to rebel against him in many ways. There were those who were involved in putting Jesus to death. There was Judas who, who betrayed him. The Jewish leaders who falsely accused him. There was Pilate who wasn't brave enough to, to release him. The crowd who called for him to be crucified. The soldiers who flogged him and nailed him to the cross. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said to the crowd, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death. And there are those today who, who are aggressively anti-Christian, may just be in words, maybe in physical persecution. We've seen this last week, haven't we, the case of uh, the Sudanese woman, Miriam Ibrahim, sentenced to a hundred lashes for, for marrying a Christian given the death sentence for converting to Christianity having to give birth in a prison with a chains on I mean it's all with somebody who persecuted Christians remember Saul and what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? if you persecute my people you're persecuting me and then there is a rebellion of just excluding Jesus from our lives 
living without reference to him, assuming that the world can carry on without him, that we have no need of him. The human race needs saving from the eternal consequences of our rebellion. And the only way for that to happen is for Jesus to die, to choose not to save himself. He cannot save himself and save others. If he is to save others, then he has to die. And no other sacrifice would be sufficient to deal with the problem of sin. No other sacrifice would be perfect. If he saved himself, others would not be saved. Back in chapter 26, the last word that Jesus met with his disciples um, on that last night, the words were, were here in a minute, Jesus took a cup and we've been given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. And that is the good news, isn't it? That however bad our sin is, it is still possible to be forgiven. We're just going to have a moment to to reflect on what we've just heard before I say a few minutes few more words and then we have the Lord's Supper together but just reflect on what Jesus had to do that we can sit here this evening and know that we've been saved, know that we've been forgiven, know that we are right with God, that he's pleased with us, he's delighted in us, he saves others but he can't save himself. Well the Jewish leaders carry on with their mockery. He trusts in God, they say. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. Well, the thing is, why is he wasting his time trusting in God? He's not going to come and rescue him now. And the irony here is that he is God, and that he is trusting in the Father, because all three members of the Trinity are working together. After the service, the last Sunday evening, somebody had, uh, mentioned that uh, when we were talking about don't all religions lead to God. But um, they had a conversation with a Muslim who had, um, uh, was basically saying, actually, we worship the same sort of God, really, you know, the God of the Old Testament. You know, we just have different views about Jesus and Muhammad. And, um, but as Christians, we, we worship a triune God. We worship Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in one. If you take any one of them out of it, you're not worshipping the same God. Jesus is God. If he was anyone other than God, what he did on the cross would not have been effective. His sacrifice would have been meaningless. It would have achieved nothing. He had to be perfect for his sacrifice to be acceptable. And the only way he could be perfect is if he was God. And when the Jewish leaders hear him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They must have thought, we told you it wasn't worth trusting in God. Look, you're, you're admitting yourself now that he's abandoned you, he's forsaken you, but had they forgotten Psalm 22? Had they forgotten what Jesus was quoting here? Can they not make the connection with what is going on in front of their eyes? Have a look at Psalm 22 briefly. His words from verse 7. 
all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. <coughs> he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So I'm starved for those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the Jewish leaders seem to have forgotten what David goes on to say in verse 4. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. They were not put to shame. Jesus is uttering a cry of anguish while continuing to put his trust in God. And the reason he does so is because what is happening is precisely what he knew would happen at the end of his ministry on earth. Everything was leading to this point. This was the will of the Father that he came to do. And he obeyed that even to the point of death. Why? Because in so doing he knew he would save his people from their sins. And it's because he trusted in God that we too can trust in God, but he hasn't forsaken us. He's here with us. He's made it possible for us to be his children, to be part of his kingdom, to be made righteous and sure to be saved. We're going to have another moment of quiet here to give thanks for what he's done for us. And we'll have a video which leads into the, uh, the Lord's Supper for us just to watch and listen to the words that come up on the screen. And uh, there'll be images there which hopefully will be helpful to you as well. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Well, I think that song captures a sort of sense of um, mixed emotions with which we come to the Lord's table, a sense of sorrow that it was our sin that put Christ there. But also a sense of rejoicing in what uh, He has done for us, and a sense of freedom and life that we have in Jesus Christ. So we come then to this table, come not because you must, but because you may. Come not to testify that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ. You desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of heaven's help and Christ's mercy. read those words I read earlier on that last night. The disciples did as Jesus direct them and prepared this Passover. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink the new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're going to give thanks for the, uh, the bread and the, the wine now, and the Karen's going to come 
and lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather here this evening and do just as you commanded your disciples to eat the bread and drink the wine and to remember what you've done for us on the cross. And we thank you that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice and that he was obedient to the cross and we remember his body on the cross and his blood shed for us too and we're thankful that there is nothing that we need to do that Jesus has done it all for us so we thank you Lord we thank you that as his arms were spread out on the cross it reminds us of his love for us each one of us here and again we thank you Lord Amen Gracious God, we praise you for what you have given and for what you have promised us here in this supper. You have made us one with all your people in heaven and on earth. You have fed us with the bread of life. And you have renewed us for your service. And so we give ourselves to you again, asking that our daily living will be part of the life of your kingdom. We ask that you would equip us to be your faithful servants in the different situations to which you've called us, in the workplace, in our schools, in our homes, in the community. In the church we do pray for all those hosting visitors this week, the teams involved in contact, the day centre, the twins club, the youth and children groups. Lord, we do pray for those going out into the world, into other countries. We think of the CIS team this week heading out to Macedonia. Pray for them. They would work together as a team, that they would proclaim clearly the gospel to the young people they meet. They would witness faithfully with their lives and know the presence and power of your Spirit. Lord, we remember those who need great patience as they wait on your healing. Lord, we pray for those struggling with uh, pressures, because our young people doing exams at the moment. Think of those grieving lost ones. Think of uh, Ruth following the loss of her father recently. Lord, strengthen her and the family we pray. I say, Lord, as we express our gratitude for all that you've done for us and continue to do for us, we bring you now our financial offering. We bring you our lives and, and ask that our, our daily living may be part of the life of your kingdom. That our love may be your love reaching out into the life of this world. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Let's uh, close by saying that the grace is together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.